invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to pick up the reading at verse 4 and read through to verse 8. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and, we can add, and tasted the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful uh, for those by whom it is cultivated receive blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask your help and your mercy as we come to this text of Scripture. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray you would give us ears to hear hearts, uh, Lord, that are softened to receive uh, the exhortation and the warning. And Father, we do pray that if there are any here who are walking in a way that would lead them uh, into a way of destruction, that you would alarm them and awaken them even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very common for Christians to refer uh, to the Bible at times as something like God's book of promises. Now, that word promise in that kind of context is intended to be positive. That is, God has promised good things. If you seek me, you will find me. I will never leave you and never forsake you. All things work together for good. I know the plans I have for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We say the Bible is full of the promises of God. But a promise, properly understood, is more than something positive. It is simply, in its definition, a statement or declaration that a thing, positive or negative, intends to be done. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Now, the expectation of the fulfillment of a promise is based upon the integrity and the ability of the one making the promise, right? And of God it can be said, and of God alone it can be said, he is thoroughly faithful He is all-powerful, and what he promises will come to pass. So that when we say that God is faithful, we are not only stating that God is to be trusted in regard to his good promises, that he never will leave you, never will forsake you. But because he is faithful, he is also to be taken seriously when he issues what might be called a warning or even a threat. Be sure your sin will find you out. The soul that sins will die are as much the promises of a faithful God as I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it is with this knowledge of the faithfulness of our God that we come to one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. Now, when I say it's controversial, I am here articulating that it is what we would call an in-house controversy, that is This is a controversy among the people of God. 
It is a source of great debate among those who are believers, those who take God's word seriously. For on the surface, it appears to show that a true believer can lose their salvation and having lost it, never be able to recover it. Now, if you were here, I think it was two weeks ago, I sought to lay out what was intended to be the introduction to this sermon, but in that introduction took the entire time. Uh, I laid out six lines of reasoning as a groundwork for our exposition, a biblical theology to help us, six assertions. And I'll summarize the whole of that message in saying this. Though the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, there is enough in our Bible regarding being deceived that we must ensure that we make our calling and election sure by engaging in acts of self-examination. Or we could put it this way. Though believers can and ought to enjoy a robust sense of assurance rooted in the promises of God concerning his salvation in Christ, those same professors must take the warnings of Scripture seriously. Profession, as we have seen, does not always equal possession. Now remember the context of these words, especially uh, the prior context. Now there's an after context as well that we need to consider. But remember the prior context. Now this book is, as we have argued many times, a sermon. It is a word of exhortation and most likely preached by one and written down by another, copied and then sent throughout the churches. And in the immediate context, the preacher is addressing the concern that some, particularly Jewish believers, would leave off their newfound confession that Jesus is the Messiah and would go back to what I'm going to call a Christless Judaism. Now, I'm going to argue that Judaism properly understood cannot be Christless. There is no such thing as a Christless Old Testament because the Old Testament spoke of him. But they would go back to what they considered a Christless uh, Judaism and that they would go back to the types and shadows of the old covenant. And to that end, to the end that they would be stopped in their spiritual madness and insanity, the writer warns them, but primarily he woos them by means of the exaltation of the person and work of Jesus. And he does that in numerous ways, but especially he does so with the argument that Jesus is the great high priest of his people. And then he tells them that this high priesthood is not like the Aaronic priesthood, that is the brother of Moses, Aaron and his family, but rather a priesthood that is after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's rooted as we have seen and we'll elaborate later on, God willing, in the book uh, in Genesis 14, but especially in a promise made in Psalm 110. Now this discussion that Jesus is a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he apparently feared that it would be met with a kind of glazed-eyed heavy side, rolling of the eyes. Oh no, what are we going to get into now? I didn't come to church for a theology lesson kind of a response. 
so that the discussion of the high priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek, and you find this in chapter 5, he proves, or he fears will prove too much for some in the church, and that the engagement of mind needed to see Christ in all of his fullness. And that is, listen, if we're going to understand our Bible, look, folks, you're going to have to pay attention sometimes. And you're going to have to gird up the loins of your minds. And you're going to have to actually engage in your humanity to hear and to listen and to believe. And he fears that some will be unable to do so because of what he calls a dullness of hearing. And what's behind the dullness of hearing? Well, sadly, it's the, re- it's the reality that Jesus is not worth the mental and spiritual effort needed to comprehend. Would I have to read a book or something? <sighs> Can't you just put it in the baby food blender, stick it in my mouth, hold my nose and let me swallow it? Do I have to actually listen and pay attention? Is he really worth it? That's, the, uh, that's, what, he's, uh, that's what he fears. And so he warns them, could it be that your past profession will prove to not only be false, but fatal? And that in regard to its fatality, that it will be done with a great finality. And with that behind us, let's turn our attention now to the ones being addressed in the text or the scenario that he lays out. And he lays out a situation, a kind of what if or a let's consider, or let's talk about a certain group of people. And I'm going to use the word apostate here. That is somebody who has turned away from their profession of faith. And so I want to consider three things. First of all, the apostate's past condition described. Secondly, his present course delineated. And then his certain doom explained. The apostate's past condition described. I'm sure you've all read stories about someone going to a doctor for what they thought was a relatively small matter and finding out they have something seriously wrong with them or with you. And that seems to be the case here. Okay, I'm a bit dull of hearing. Okay, I'm not as mature as I ought to be. I ought to be a teacher by now. I should be eating solid food, but instead I'm drinking milk. I'm going to go to the doctor and he's going to say, all right, it may be something is wrong with you that is worse than a case of spiritual dullness and immaturity okay that's the idea there's something more serious going on in your souls why this sloth and why this dullness when it comes to learning about jesus why when there is a deep dive into the person of christ do your eyes glaze over why is your spiritual growth so easily hindered And the preacher again warns them that this spiritual decline and dullness may be indicative of something far worse. And to bring the point home, the preacher gives a description of a certain person who had tremendous spiritual privileges. And in doing this, he describes powerfully and vividly someone were it not for this context, we would describe as a robust Christian. 
It's not the kind of person, he doesn't give a a situation like this. Now, we all know somebody who was at an evangelistic service, and after seven verses of just as I am, uh, their their husband or wife ribbed them, and they came down, and they prayed a sinner's prayer, and they got baptized, and, and, you know, they joined the church, and were there for a little while, and now they're drunk somewhere. That's not the story he tells. There are certain people who make a profession of faith that is so minimal that we, at, at times as pastors, we use an expression, I, can't, I don't know where this started, we use an expression that in the judgment of charity that we think there's enough here to say that they may be a Christian. But there's nothing, there's nothing about them that is robust. There's nothing about them that is tangible and obvious in their love to Christ, love for the word, love for worship, love for the people of God. But they do make a profession. There's an orthodox confession that Jesus is the son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross uh, for sin, was buried, raised from the dead, and is coming again. They make a confession of orthodox Christian doctrine, and there is nothing blatantly immoral about them. That kind of person, again, you say, in the judgment of charity, I think we have to say they're a Christian. That's not who he's talking about here. He gives five statements regarding the condition of this one who's going to fall away. And you see those five elements in verses four and five. Let me articulate them for you. First of all, they were once enlightened. Secondly, they tasted the heavenly gift. Thirdly, were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, tasted the good word of God. And fifthly, tasted the powers of the age to come. There is a a grammatical rule in the Greek where sometimes you can take a description from a, a previous, in this case, tasted and bring it forward to the next statement. That's why I say tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, I'm not going to give a deep dive into every one of these descriptions. I don't think that's necessary. He's simply making an argument and he's pouring on one description after another. It's the kind of thing like if I stood up and I said this, dear ones, there's somebody in our church who is, has, has turned away. And you say, but they had a great testimony. They went to Bible college and then to seminary, were greatly gifted, planted a church, went on the mission field, engaged in apologetics and street evangelism, led in prayer, uh, in the prayer meetings with zeal and tears. And you say, all right, well, break down each one of them. Now, I don't need to do that, right? You get the idea of who I'm talking about. The terms are powerful enough, certainly, to engender the question, can a truly converted person then lose their salvation and having lost it, lose it forever? Or to put it another way, how can this not describe someone who has been born again? Or to put it another way, Contemporary faith really be that strong and vivid? To ask it another way, can someone like that ever be in danger of falling away? Does somebody like that need to heed warnings? That's the, that's the answer, that's the question, that's the real question, and that's the answer, yes. Even someone like this needs to heed the warning. What's that intended to do? It's intended to shock you. 
You see, you hear these stories all the times about people leaving the faith, right? Young people leave the church. Some Christian singer somewhere. This is all the time. I mean, happening all the time. And I, I, I don't even know their names. I don't, I don't know a lot of these. But, you know, somebody, man, they sang about Jesus. And what are you, what are you tempted to think? Well, probably some shallow evangelical church walked the aisle. Hey, you've got gifts. Let's put you up front, put you in a band, and you're going to sing about Jesus. But they never really understood any of it. And when we say that, what we're saying is, well, you see, it couldn't happen to me. Because I'm not like that. I'm not part of the shallow Big Eva movement. I'm not one of those. Now, it's meant to warn us, again, because we all... In a context like this, and at the risk of sounding arrogant, we're confessionally reformed people with, that know our Bibles and know our theology. And we may be tempted then to exempt ourselves from consideration with such a warning to self-examination or to really engaging in a testing of ourselves to see if we're of the faith. Well, we must be. How could you know what we know? And fall away. Surely there aren't any Calvinists in hell. Surely there aren't any 1689 confessional people who wind up turning away. Oh, yes, they do. You see, we may be quick to point out our knowledge or our theology or even our experience or giftedness or life change as a proof that we are forever secure. I never need to question, I never need to doubt, I never need to really examine myself. So these words are calculated to bring about a degree of discomfort. I'm going to use a, I'm going to use a, a phrase here. Again, I don't mean it insulting or arrogant, but I mean it this way. But listen to what I'm saying. It is calculated to bring about a degree of discomfort among the best of us. The ones who say, but I'm really striving. But I'm really trying. I'm reading the word. Okay, listen. Even you need to watch your heart with all diligence. And so these five descriptive elements are brought forth. And let me just touch on there is knowledge and experience. Again, easy to say when someone falls away, they didn't really understand the gospel. Listen, I have read books of people that later fell away. And I've denied the faith, and, and best I could tell, they sure understood the gospel. And they preached it, and they preached it well. We've tempted to say they were only formalists, nothing was real, it was always fake. And again, it may be comforting to reason that way because it avoids the hard work, again, of necessary and commanded self examination. What these apostates had, I'm going to say this, was something, in this sense, real. It doesn't mean it was conversion. It does not mean, obviously, that it was eternal and lasting. But it wasn't something fake from the beginning. You know, whenever someone falls away, and, and and sometimes even when somebody falls morally in some way, I always ask the question, when did, it, when did they begin to fake it? Because you don't go from a robust confession to total disaster overnight. When did they know? 
You see, because it, they were not playing games at first, not the kind of person described here. They may well, as these Jews had, had paid some dear price in coming to Christ and being baptized and being part of the church. There was real enlightenment. Ah, that's who Jesus is. That's what the Bible says about humanity. That's what the Bible says about salvation. That's what justification is. I see it now. There was enlightenment that most in the world don't have. And they tasted heavenly gifts. And that's enforced with the term that they were partakers of the Holy Spirit himself. And that would be indicative that there was some internal and heartfelt experience by the Spirit that resulted in a time for them, for them seeing Jesus as the prophesied Savior because no one says Jesus is Lord apart from some work of the Spirit. They tasted the good word of God. It would indicate that there may well have been some love for the preaching and teaching, some glorying, at least for a time, in revealed truth. And they tasted the powers of the world to come. Have you ever tasted the powers of the world to come? That is, there was something biblical and heavenly and eternal and weighty to their thinking and experience. Perhaps some desire after a particularly maybe difficult time and some struggle with sin, some desire to see Jesus, some longing for that world to come where they would be at rest and where righteousness dwells and sin would be no more and they would see his glory. And see, some of us can hear that and go, yeah. Some of you may hear that and go, yeah. And sometimes when we hear the word and sometimes when we read the word and sometimes when we sing with God's people, we, begin, we get a glimpse. It's like the clouds part and, and there he is and there's the glory of the world to come. They heard and were moved by the word. They changed morally and intellectually and spiritually. In worship again, they caught some glimpse of heaven, a world to come a world of righteousness and holiness, a place where God sits enthroned and all his holy will is done. Now when someone like that falls away, if after such knowledge and such experience and such blessing, if such a one fails to guard their heart and fight their sin and grows careless to the point where they not only fall into some grievous sin, but where Jesus no longer means anything to them. That's what he's getting at. Beware. You see, there is more hope for the casual, careless professor of a shallow religion without experience than there is for such. Because we can say to somebody, look, they never really understood the gospel. They were never in a place where they ever had any real experience of the world to come. They never saw prayers answered and people transformed and a, and a heavy sense of the presence of God during the worship of God among the people where, like, 
again, glory broke through on a particular Lord's Day. Some of us have seen that and experienced things like that. Some people have never had that. And you go, well, you know, if they leave off Christianity, what are they really leaving off? Some legalistic, shallow, ritualistic moralism with some scattering of Bible verses in it. If they reject that, we say, well, there's hope for them. But brethren, what if somebody like I've been describing, to whom much is given, our Savior said, much is required and much is expected, and there is a special danger that comes with such privilege. You see, if you think you know more, and some of you do, some of us do, and if we boast that we have better theology, and perhaps boast that we have a, a, a deeper experience, just know that for you, than to come to the place where you have so neglected so great a salvation for you not only to embrace sin and the world and the applause of men. You see, that's one thing. That's far more worthy of condemnation than those who have had little experience or little knowledge. But they're not just embracing sin in the world. That's not the primary issue here. As we'll see in a moment, it is their turning from Jesus. So why take heed? Well, in the scenario, it is possible for people like that. And I know people like that. Well-instructed people. And again, here in this context, they were well-instructed people. People who heard apostles. People who witnessed miracles. And some of them may have heard Jesus himself. They came to this dire condition. So that's his past state. Described, now consider the apostate's present course delineated. And we must see here there is a specific person being warned of again in this text. If this one, right, you see that there. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Etc. If this one, this one of high privilege, if they should fall away, and the word used for fall here is a compound word, and it just really is meant to, to make it intensive, uh, to fall, to fall beside a thing, to slip aside, to deviate from the right course, etc., is the idea of the word. And one thing we must say here again is that about this fall is that it is not the result of some sudden inexplicable event. See, when we fall physically, I'm trying to remember, it seems like I fell fairly recently. I'm trying to remember what it, but when we fall, we generally don't plan it, right? <laughs> We're not doing the kinds of things that are calculated to, to bring it. Now, I do, I do have a, a pair of shoes that are really, really easy to put on. Some of these like Kizik shoes, you know, you've seen some of these things, you may have seen them advertised where you just step into them and the back collapses and you just shove your feet in. Great for an old guy. But the problem is I've had them for so long that they're really slick on the bottom and I know that if it's a little bit wet outside that there are spots in my neighborhood where the sidewalk has been ground down to a certain place and if I'm not careful, I'm going to slip on it every time if I'm wearing those shoes. 
So I'm engaging activity that I know is a bit dangerous when I engage in the convenience of putting on those shoes. But generally speaking, when we slip, we just slip. We stumble over something in front of us. We suddenly experience a drop, a curb that's there that we didn't see, a step. We thought we were on the last step of the staircase in the dark and we weren't. Whatever it is, we fall. If I were to fall here, trip over here, and you know, I'm not one of the preachers that walks all over the place, but if I did and, and, and I fell over, some of you might gasp and be alarmed. Some of you would be tempted to laugh. Some of you might think, what an idiot, you know, whatever. But you wouldn't necessarily say, well, he just made a mistake. It was a blunder. And that's, sometimes we have that, well, I, he just fell. You know, he was, was just walking along in his Christian life and he just fell. You know, he just stumbled, like, you know, like we do when we're walking. No, that's not the idea here. This fall is blameworthy. It is the result of the kind of condition described in chapter 2 that this great salvation has been neglected because we're not taking heed to the things that we have heard. We're not taking, as he says, the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. And in the context, he's talking about the glory of the Son of God. They rested when they should have labored. Thinking like Samson, they would just go out and be strong like they were before the time of their neglect. And neglect leads to apathy, and apathy can lead to hostility. And questions of the faith that were once quenched out of the fountain of a love to Christ are now insurmountable intellectual mountains. A faith once precious and treasured is now something not only ignored but reject it. And again, the fall is not necessarily moral, though that is often the case. The fall may not be exegetical. That is, I have come to see that there are so many contradictions in the scriptures that they are no longer, um, uh, I can no longer tolerate them. It may not be fully intellectual. And again, may not be to pursue some sin, though that is often the case. But it is, though it may not be any of those things, it is at some point purposeful. The person who has been brought to this condition is in a place now where their repentance cannot be renewed. It is, the text says, impossible. Now, we're not used to seeing that phrase in relation to anything having to do with our faith. All things are possible. With God, nothing is impossible. Well, here's something that's impossible. There are those, let me say, there are those who have been renewed to repentance after a serious decline and after some gross moral failure. I, bless God, know people like that too. There are those who are awakened out of their spiritual sloth and danger and they were alarmed and sorrowful that they allowed themselves to get to where they were. But through the prompting of the spirit, the loving rebuke of another, some contact with the word, a sermon preached, their faith is renewed. But not here. Why? Why is it impossible? Have they lost their mind? They lost their capacity and ability to think. Why is it impossible? Here's the answer. 
Because the gracious God of heaven, the God who is love, has brought upon them a certain judgment of soul that will make them insensible to eternal realities. The fear of God and the love of God and the pleas of others and the ability to answer any and all the questions that somebody has concerning the faith are met, as it were, with a blind eye and a deaf ear and a deadened soul. And we are reminded in this that our salvation from first to last is all of grace, that is to say, all of God and not of ourselves. You see, it is of him that we are in Christ Jesus. And if he does not open our eyes, our eyes will not be opened. It is grace that awakens, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve. It is grace that awakens and grace that alarms and grace that keeps and grace that seeks us when we go astray. If the shepherd in the parable had not left the flock and sought the one that was astray, that sheep would never have returned on its own. Now listen, if you have ever been in a backslidden condition, And I won't ask how many of you have been. I will tell you I have been, at least once in my life, in a period of decline for a number of weeks. If you were brought back, why were you brought back? Because the shepherd sought you. It's because of the grace of God. But what if he didn't seek you? You would have remained forever in the wilderness. Now, we must ask the question, why is this so? Why is there this strong and fearful judgment? Or to ask another question, what is it about apostasy that is so bad? Well, consider there's certain doom explained. One major reason is given and then explained. They crucify again for themselves, the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. It's what they, so it's an explanation. They, they, he says what they do, and then he, he explains it a bit. All right, so follow along with me, dear ones. Remember the great issue of this book is Christ. The great aim of the enemy is not moral failure, but Christological rejection. It's not to get you to change your mind morally or politically. It's to get you to reject the Jesus of the Bible. If we were in a boxing ring and I punched your hip, your rib, or your kidney, it would be under the end that you drop your hand so I could smack your head. It's not to break your hip. It's to knock you out. If the enemy hits you morally, His aim is not to break your hip. It's to go after your head. You understand? Now, he may use morality and politics and a host of other things to get you to reject Christ. But that's his ultimate aim. He can do whatever way he can do it. Again, it's not simply to plunge you into immorality or theological liberalism or Christless conservatism. 
His goal is to bring you into a Christlessness in your soul, to a rejection of the Jesus of the Bible, so that the one who is so beautifully and forcefully described here, and if we could start all over again and read from chapter 1 and verse 1 onward, of all that he is and all that we will see yet describing him, See, that's who they're rejecting. Not a mere historical figure, not some figment of liberal theology, but the Jesus that they had come to hear of and to some degree experience. What happens, so what happens when somebody rejects that Jesus? Well, they are denying then his identity and denying his mission. Now it's his identity that makes his mission so wonderful. But what was his mission? Unto what end did he come into this world? What was his grand aim in coming into this world? Why did he take on flesh and blood? Where did he go? Went to the cross. His mission culminates in the cross. And for us who know him, for us who hope in him, his cross is glorious. And I think sometimes when we hear, and I think if there's an unbeliever here, sometimes somebody comes in and maybe it's their first time in a Christian church and they hear us talking about there's a fountain filled with blood. Or we talk about the old rugged cross or glorying in the cross and, 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 and how uh, sacred head now wounded or whatever, and how odd it must sound. You're talking about the execution of a man. His being whipped and beaten and and, and nailed to a tree. And you're celebrating? And you're calling it your hope and your glory and your joy? You see, that's what it is for us. And why is it glorious? Well, because of who died there and what he was doing when he died. See, there are at least two things to, be, to behold in the cross of Christ to explain what was happening historically when the carpenter of Nazareth was being put to death by a Roman decree. See, there's two ways to look at it. All right, so historically speaking, okay, we're going to say we all agree that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who taught and who preached a rabbi among the people who died on a Roman cross. All right, so what happens? So when he is crucified, what do we say? Well, our glory is, and our confession is this, is that on the cross, the Son of God, who's articulated here in our passage, the Son of God was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. You know those sins that you committed this past week? You know those sins of which you are ashamed? You know those sins that gnaw at you sometimes if you're a believer? God was in Christ nailing those to the cross and paying, and Jesus was paying the penalty for them. He was in one act being the Lamb of God who takes away forever the sin of the world. He was bringing about the means by which people like us can come boldly into the presence of a holy God, which was why when he died, the veil of the 
temple that separated the holy of holies from the holy place was rent in two from top to the bottom, showing that we could go boldly to a holy God. When Jesus died, we say a fountain was being opened for sin and uncleanness. He who knew no sin was becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that we who believe that he was who he said he was, glory that he did what he came to do on the cross. But what happens in apostasy? Well, there is still a man who dies on the cross. And what you do then is you rewrite the biblical narrative of the cross so that there is now a fresh crucifixion in which there is no father in heaven looking down on his beloved son. A crucifixion in which there is no lamb of God pouring out his blood. A crucifixion in which there is nothing more than a convicted criminal worthy of death dying beside two other criminals worthy of death. You redo the crucifixion. You reenact the cross and you change in your apostasy the whole meaning of it. It is to put Jesus into the same category as the thieves. You see, Paul wrestled with this in his before coming to faith because he knew enough of his Old Testament, being an expert in the law, to know that any man who hung upon a cross was cursed of God. And Paul came to see that there was a theological significance to that, that Jesus became a curse for us. But the idea was if somebody died a death and then you went and you hung his body on a tree, and you read in the Old Testament, sometimes they hang people from trees or they stuck them on trees or nailed them to trees. And that was to put them to an open shame. It was so that everybody who walked by knew this is somebody who did something gross and is cursed of God and cursed of man. And sometimes the idea of hanging between earth and heaven, unworthy of earth, unworthy of heaven, hung on a tree. And you see, and that's what Jesus of Nazareth becomes in the soul of the apostate. He's not the glorious son of God pouring out his lifeblood for sinners. He's a worthless nobody, a common thug, worthy of death and cursing. And if there is a God and Jesus died the way he died, he is nothing more than a common criminal whose blood poured out is an unclean thing not to be touched. And for the Jew, the blood he shed was not the blood of the lamb, which cleanses from sin, but simply the bodily fluids of a dying criminal. So this apostasy, is to take what God regards as the great event of human history. To take the God-man who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament and to make it a matter of open shame. So that Jesus saves no one. His death is meaningless and his resurrection a fairy tale. Now do you see the offense of such a sin? And again, this is not the conclusion of an unbeliever who has never heard 
or someone who's grown up in church and knows all of these things but never profess. Although I do want to say there is a warning here to know what you know and not adore. To hear of this Savior and say, yeah, I think he did what you say he did and yet not go to him for cleansing. But you see, this is something different. This is a man or woman or young person who once gloried in the cross who now says it's a scandal. One who once proclaimed that Christ and him crucified was the wisdom and power of God who now says it's utter foolishness. To have tasted what they have tasted, to have seen what they have seen, and to have heard what they have heard, and to have confessed what they have confessed. When that kind comes to a place where they say, I reject it all, there's no other sacrifice for sins. We're going to come to see that later in the book. So that if indeed there is salvation in no one else, And if there is indeed no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and to reject him and to reject his cross and to mock the blood shed on the cross is to come to a condition where God says there's no escape. And again, this is more than a neglect of these things. It's a rejection, but brethren, neglect leads to rejection. This is placed for us in the starkest terms. And you might say, well, brother, I know a guy who, uh, I hope you do. I know a guy who fell out of a, 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 a boat in the middle of class six rapids. And everybody says it's fatal, but he survived. Well, what does that make you want to do? Go out and get in his class six rapids? Or to go, well, that's a miracle. Because everybody who... Well, I know a guy got hit by lightning lots of times. Do you really? So you want to go? You see, this is not meant to embolden. This is not meant to embolden anyone. It's not meant to encourage anyone who is on a pathway that would lead them to destruction. It's to say, listen, friend, you 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 are going to a place where you're never coming back. To reject Jesus. And you say to them, well, my friend, what do you make of him on the cross? No more than any other of the thousands of, listen, thousands of people died on thousands of crosses. We don't celebrate them. Some of them deserved it. So what the criminal said, we deserve this. We're worthy of it. Did he? Is that all that he is? You see, this is meant to awaken us. It's meant to elicit a spiritual awakening to those who may be even now contemplating a departure from the faith. There may be for you certain lines in your mind and in your life that you think to yourself, if I ever crossed that line, if I ever went there, if I ever really indulged that sin, Embrace that lust. It would mean the beginning of the end of my faith. But nowhere is that more true than in regard to your neglect of Christ. And so how is it there, friend? Remember, this whole warning starts with people that have grown dull of hearing. Those who cannot expend the energy to know Jesus better. What a sad thing. 
Bibles neglected, prayer neglected, fellowship neglected, the word neglected, sacrament neglected, worship neglected. Neglecting, neglecting those things that lead you to a deeper love and deeper walk for the person of Jesus. If you're getting to the place where you realize you you can expend energy on all kinds of things, interested in all kinds of things, but not interested to know Jesus any better. You see, these people needed help to see him as he is so that to leave him would be placed in its proper light. And this is again why we must guard our hearts above all that we guard and why Christ must be a pearl of great price to us. Is he precious to you? You see, there's some people going to hear that and go, I I don't know. Well, let let me help you answer that. The answer is no. If you don't know, if you can't answer if he's precious to you, then the answer is he's not. Is he your hope? Well, yeah, he's he my hope. See, we sing that, right? He's our, he's our hope. He's our song. He's all. He's our all. We sing that, but is it true? And this is why this is urgent. This is why sin must be fought and put to death and why confession must be made and why the heart must be kept tender toward one another because all of these are punches in the hip and punches in the ribs to go after our head. May God help us, even now in coming to the table, for us to see him as he truly is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to consider these words and these warnings from your word and pray, Lord, that they may weigh upon our hearts, that Christ may become, if he's not now, exceedingly precious to us all. Aid us even unto that end, Lord, as we now partake of the emblems of his body and blood. We pray it in his matchless name.